This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Asset prices around the world have gotten off to a volatile start this year as investors raise concerns over the efficacy of policy maneuvers, particularly at the central bank level, and weakening emerging markets. To discuss these trends, I'm joined today by Peter Oppenheimer, the Chief Global Equity Strategist and Head of European Macro Research for Goldman Sachs. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. So we've started off the year seeing a partial rebound from the steep declines that uh, the, in January and February. Do you see this as a sign of real stabilization or just a temporary lull in an ongoing period of volatility? I think on balance, the latter. You know, when we uh, did our outlook pieces for this year, we described for equities the environment as fat and flat, a fat or wide volatile trading range with relatively flat returns. And the two main reasons for this were firstly that after several years of QE in response to the financial crisis, most equity markets had seen a major re-rating. In other words, their PE ratios had risen to quite high levels by historic standards. They weren't particularly cheap. And secondly, the outlook for profit growth was moderating around the world. Margins had hit a peak in the US. Revenue growth was slowing alongside lower nominal economic growth and lower inflation. So the combination led us to believe that it's quite difficult to get broad equity market rises in a significant way, contrary to the situation we'd seen in recent years. And as we moved into the beginning of this year, because of the intense focus on falling commodity prices, the fears about the impact of rising US interest rates, and also the focus on a China slowdown, you've really seen a major decline in growth expectations around the world and inflation expectations. Now, we've seen a bit of a rally in recent weeks, mainly, I think, because commodity prices have started to pick up. People have started worrying a little bit less about tail risks? A little bit less about tail risks. There's been some better data, particularly in the US, and I think things got quite oversold. So this is all consistent, I think, really with this idea that you get a volatile trading range. But I think a lot of the underlying problems that investors have worried about, slow long-term growth and weak profit outlook, relatively full valuations, haven't really changed. And so I think this volatile trading range is still probably the right way to look at it for this year. So in your research, you've tied some of these questions about the stability of asset prices to a much broader story, which you call the third wave. Mm. Explain what that means. The way that we've been sort of thinking about things in the last year or so is that the financial crisis, which is into its eighth year or so, hasn't really been about one event. It's really been about a series of related events where the epicenter of the risks have really shifted from one region to another. So if you think about it, you go back to 2008 and 9, the beginning of the financial crisis was the collapse in the US housing market and subprime. And that broadened out into a credit crunch that affected the global economy. We saw a recession globally. We saw very sharp falls in risky asset prices for obvious reasons. But ultimately, this was stabilized through a process of very aggressive policy easing. Interest rates got down to zero, the dollar devalued, and then we had QE. And that worked. It had the effect of stabilizing the US economy. Financial markets responded very positively, and we saw some very sharp rises in equity markets. They got to very low valuations. But it wasn't too long later, a year or so, 
that the concerns started to build up again and the focus shifted to Europe. Why? Because Europe had very levered banks with huge exposure to US subprime. Relatively anemic policy responses at, at, that, at stage, that time. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And also banks had very large exposures to sovereign debt, which had built up to very high levels, particularly in the so-called periphery, the south of Europe. And of course, that really dominated the market focus over the next two, two and a half years, as eventually investors worried about the potential for the euro area to break up completely, the single currency to be broken up. So that's your second wave. That was the second wave. And interestingly, like the first wave, ultimately, the policy response was very aggressive. It took longer in Europe because it was more complex. It's given always, the it's always more countries. complicated to get consensus in Europe. Yeah. yeah, a lot more countries involved, of course. But ultimately, you know, rates got down to zero. You saw a currency devaluation and you saw ultimately QE. And that really was the turning point where things looked as if they had started to stabilize. And again, from very low valuations, which reflected the intense concerns at the time, there was a very sharp recovery in risky assets around the world, in equities in particular. And things started to look much better again until we moved into what we describe as this third wave, where I guess initially prompted by falling commodity markets, the focus of attention started to shift to emerging economies, which, of course, were very much at the heart of the falling commodity price issue. And then that broadened out ultimately into concerns about debt levels in EM and China in particular. And the concern that if you had needed to see very aggressive policy responses in the US and then in Europe, zero rates, QE, devaluations, why should that not be the pattern in EM? And if we were to see those kinds of adjustments, particularly in things like a devaluation of the RMB, it could be very deflationary and negative for the global economy, particularly because interest rates and inflation were already so low in both the US and Europe. So you first talked about this third wave mm. in October of last year. Since then, five months later, we've seen the Fed hike interest rates, oil mm -hmm. um, continues to fall. And obviously, as we've talked about, renewed concerns about China's economy and its resilience. Where do we stand today with regards to your original thesis? Are we any closer to normalization? Well, when we talked about this third wave, we tried to describe two potential outcomes. And of course, this is a, a generalization. There are many permutations mm -hmm. in between. But Overall, I guess you could think of one rather negative course that follows this third wave, where the drawdown in growth in EM is very aggressive. The policy response needed to stabilize growth is very aggressive. And that really drives global growth down into another recession. And you get competitive devaluations and competitive and, yeah. devaluations. That, I think, is increasingly the concern which has been priced into the markets, particularly in January of this year. The alternative scenario, which was actually the one that we believed and still believe in, is that there's a more benign interpretation. Ultimately, this third wave is a necessary adjustment of economic imbalances, just as we had seen in Europe and the US before. And like those previous waves, it's about deleveraging of economies. And while that may be choppy for a period of time, ultimately, it will create the basis for a more balanced, sustained economic recovery globally and gradually you'll get interest rates rising. That's still the view that we have. I think at the moment we're switching in market sentiment between one or other of those outcomes, the more aggressively negative one 
the potentially more benign one. The interesting thing I think though is that when you're in a world of effectively zero interest rates and extremely low inflation, it's very difficult to be convinced as an investor of which one of those outcomes you're moving into. Thus we'll see some oscillation. And the volatility. Uh, and the volatility and, yeah. and what's interesting again, I think, Jake, is that the two outcomes, the two trajectories, imply almost diametrically opposite strategies. Dip into investing the more negative strategy. investment yeah, strategies. Yeah, exactly. If you dip into the more negative outcome, then yeah, in, in simple terms, it's a world where you want to be long of bonds, even at very low interest rates. You want to be underweight of equities, which do very badly in a deflationary world. You want to be underweight of banks and overweight of defensive parts of the market and so on. Whereas, of course, if you move into the slightly more benign outcome, where these adjustments are believed to be working, but you're still left with very low interest rates, that's a world where you want to be selling bonds, where you would expect bond yields to rise, where equities are a much better place to be in credit, risky assets, where you would want to be buying things that are levered to growth, like cyclicals and banks, mm -hmm. and when you would want to be selling very defensive parts of the market, which have become quite expensive. So I think this uh, risk of moving from one to the other is also an explanation of these volatile swings that we're getting, both in the overall markets, but also the rotations, the violent rotations that we're seeing in and beneath of, in and out of the, sectors, the, the, yeah. the index. Yeah. So you talked about how the first two waves of the global financial crisis, both in the U.S. and Europe, unwound due to a combination of low interest rates, QE, and currency devaluations. How are emerging markets responding to the challenges they're facing? And what might we see in terms of further policy action? What would be the impact on markets? Well, I think here there is some encouraging news in the sense that when the emerging markets' focus really started to become very intense, a lot of the concern was about the impact of falling commodity prices. Of course, some, not all, emerging economies are big commodity producers and they would suffer from that. But also there was a legitimate concern about the size of some of the external imbalances which had built up in emerging economies. And the worry, going back some time now, was that in a world where US interest rates might start rising, and those concerns of course turned out to be premature, emerging markets that had big external liabilities, big current account deficits, for example, would be very vulnerable to rising US rates and they would suffer currency collapses, need to raise their rates, that would trigger lower growth and you get into a vicious cycle. In much like we saw in the late 90s. Like yeah. Very much as we saw in the late 1990s, a kind of classic EM problem. The good news is that much of that adjustment for many of these countries has started to happen and is quite well advanced. So a lot of these countries did see big currency devaluations. They did see big adjustments in growth. Many had recessions, but that brought down the size of these imbalances. And I think they're much less vulnerable now to some of the adjustments if we were to see, for example, US interest rates start to rise more quickly. That said, the one area where you have not seen these adjustments, or currency adjustments in particular, is in China, because China has maintained this sort of fixed exchange rate and has managed to do that for a long time, because unlike many other emerging economies, it doesn't have external liabilities. It has huge excess savings. It's got a very big current account surplus. But over time, of course, as the Chinese economy has slowed, the concerns are that it too would need to see policy adjustment in the form of lower rates, perhaps a weaker currency, 
And that, I think, has crystallised the concerns about such a major and large and impactful economy operating very loose policies, which could be very deflationary for the rest of the world. So I would say, in summary, I think a lot of the systemic risks that people might have been worried about in emerging economies have moderated. But we're still left, I think, with the uncertainty of how the Chinese economy develops over the medium term in an environment where perhaps US interest rates are rising and it gradually delevers like you've seen in many other major economies in Europe and the US. So, Peter, when you talk about the second wave, you wrote a report some time ago, The Long Goodbye, mm. where you predicted that risk assets would respond favorably to the policy response in Europe. Mm. How's that played out? Well, I think it has played out very well. Remember that at the time, although there were many economic uncertainties, as I guess you could say there are today, the difference was that valuations reached very low levels. In European equity markets in particular, but generally, I think that's true across equities. In Europe in particular, you know, in 2009, the PE multiple got down to around eight times and similar to that again in the second wave when people really worried about the European crisis. And we argued that, yes, the economic outlook was uncertain, but you were being rewarded for taking that risk. And indeed, since then, if you look at the lows in 2009, equity markets have made tremendous progress. The US market has gone up about 200%. The European markets, even without really any profit growth, have gone up about 100%. So the annualized returns you're talking about here over that period of time, as QE has really become the dominant policy tool, have really been very staggering. The difficulty is that that's left a lot of markets now with less value but still relatively modest profit growth outlooks. And that's why we see the transition to a more of a fat and flat environment now. So policymakers have been worried, obviously, about the risks of deflation, in part because it's very difficult to combat. Low oil prices have certainly kept inflation well below central bank targets all across the world. Do you see any reason to expect higher inflation the rest of this year? And what sectors would benefit from a mm. shift in expectations around inflation rates? Well, as a house, we do think that the concerns about deflation, which have been mounting in recent months, have been overstated. After all, if you look at the US in particular, uh, the most recent data suggests that core inflation, excluding food and energy, for example, is around 2.2%. So it's actually above the Fed's target. target. Yep. And many other similar types of indicators are showing the same thing. You're even seeing some wage pressure. In the and US, indeed, so. some wage pressure because unemployment continues to come down. The labor market is relatively tight with higher wages and reasonable core inflation. It's consistent with our view as a house that interest rates should gradually rise in the US. Now, the inflationary pressures are less evident in many other parts of the world because output gaps are bigger. There's more spare capacity. But even in places like Europe, unemployment is coming down from high levels and you're starting to see improvements in modest rises in wages, certainly rises in real incomes. And I should say again, before people get too gloomy, it is worth noting that one real sense of positive surprise over the last two or three years has been the labour markets in most places. So whereas we've had year by year consensus expectations of GDP growth in most places being too high and having to come down, and alongside that, labor markets have been pretty labor resilient. Labor markets have been resilient. So there's a sort of sectoral shift, which is important here, where we think generally things are improving for 
the consumer in the US, across Europe and in Japan, even to some extent at the margin in emerging markets. On the other hand, there are still very um, severe, I think, headwinds for areas which are very geared into global capex, because it's important to sort of emphasize the scale of the capex boom we've seen globally in the last decade or so, much of which have reflected the developments of globalization, the emergence of the BRICS economies, the huge increase in commodity capex expenditure over the last decade or so. The super cycle fueled a lot of spending Absolutely. on capital. And yep. with it, of course, the big deepening of capital spending in emerging economies, in places like China in particular, where there was a huge amount of retooling to build up the export base to meet increased global demand. So we think that's an overhang of capacity, which is going to continue to draw down on inflation in some parts of the economy and will create a drag on margins and profits for the companies facing that. So overall, I think people have been too worried about deflation, but there are differences beneath the surface which are worth emphasising. What would happen if we were to see inflation expectations picking up a little bit? And of course, oil prices stabilising or rising a bit would be an important part of that inflection. I think in that situation, you would tend to see a bit more move towards cyclical parts of the market, less the defensive parts, which have generally performed very well as people have been so uncertain. You would start to find so-called value stocks doing rather better than growth stocks. Growth has also done very well in a world where growth has been seen to be very scarce. And I think you would also see an environment where banks, for example, would do much better because at the moment they've suffered from concerns about revenue opportunities in a world where yield curves are very flat and indeed in some cases interest rates are turning negative and it's very difficult for them to generate returns when their net interest margins are being squeezed so much. So I think this potential shift from a perceived deflationary world to a what we call lowflation type world, not a high inflation world, <laughs> would be quite meaningful in terms of the rotation that you would expect to see beneath the surface of the major markets, even if the overall indices were not making significant progress. And I think it's a sense of that rotation that we're beginning to see in the very recent past, as oil prices have started to pick up and some of the macro data has started to improve a little bit again. So, Peter, there are some who doubt the efficacy of policymakers today and, and really fear that they don't have the tools to address some of the concerns that the markets are reflecting. We saw, in fact, a really distinct fall in Japan in response to the relatively unusual step of adopting negative interest rates. Have investors lost faith in the ability of monetary policy mm. to change the ease concerns in the markets? Mm. I think this year in particular, there has been a general loss of confidence reflected in the markets about the ability for central banks to make meaningful changes to growth. There's a sense that policy adjustments have avoided a disaster, avoided a depression, but haven't really genuinely done enough to generate significant growth. And in a sense, you know, perception is reality. People believe that monetary policy works, it works. And if they start to believe it doesn't, it has unintended consequences and people tend to save more and they get more cautious. And we may have hit that point. After all, you know, we spent years getting interest rates down to effectively zero, then crossing the Rubicon into unconventional policy easing, which included QE. And now we're getting to the point where 
in Europe and Japan, you're getting negative interest rates. And that is creating problems for the banks, which is creating problems for overall levels of confidence amongst the corporates and indeed households. So I think you get to a point where if interest rates move aggressively negative, people start to think that that is a signal that things must be really bad and they become more cautious as a result, which is the reverse, cycle, yeah, if reverse you like, of what you want to see. Yeah. And that's a little bit why we've taken the view some time ago that for risky assets, equities in particular, ironically, seeing interest rates rise, at least in the US, for the right reasons, because growth is strong rather than inflation is picking up, would actually be pretty good for equities. And we find that the correlation between changes in bond yields and interest rates on the one hand and equity prices on the other is not linear. It really does change over time, depending on the levels of interest rates. So in a very sort of normal world, if you like, falling interest rates tend to be good, good for, for equities, equities yeah, yeah. because, you know, people look at that as relative, the discount rate. Yeah, the relative rates. But when you get down to extraordinarily low interest rates and bond yields, what you tend to find is that further cuts in yields are actually accompanied by a rise in the so-called risk premium as people see this as an indication that there's less growth in the future and more risk of deflation and so your overall cost of equity which is the discount rate uh, doesn't actually come down and you get sort of negative effects and i think we've seen some of that so you talk to a lot of sophisticated investors every day in fact you're in new york to meet with some of them mm. today in those conversations, where do you get the most pushback on your views of where we are in, in the markets today? Well, I would say in general, interestingly, I don't think there are very strong consensus views out there. And I don't think there's a lot of very strong conviction. I, I would say anywhere. Know, there, there are times when you go around and you get a very good sense that there are views that are very strongly held, common views in the marketplace, whether it be about currencies or the direction of interest rates or markets. At the moment, I think there's a lot of confusion and it really reflects a lot of the uh, issues that we've been discussing. We do get pushed back on our view that things are not as bad as the markets have priced, that economic activity, at least in the US in particular, but even in places like Europe, are doing OK and that the risks of deflation are probably overpriced. The view that we have that interest rates can rise moderately, that the economy, particularly in the US, is sufficiently robust to be able to sustain that, I think is seen to be quite controversial now. So that is quite positive. In a way, I think people have become quite gloomy, partly because they have seen a lot of volatility. It's difficult to see where very strong growth is going to come from. There is still a lot of unresolved questions about things related to EM and China that we've been discussing. And also because there are other difficult to price risks many of them political now, which people are having to contend with. So, Peter, that's what you're hearing from investors. There's a range of views, but not a lot of conviction. At Goldman, economists here basically have to take a view, and they've said recession is relatively unlikely in 2016. What are the risks to that view? Well, one of the things that's important to emphasize as a risk is that although getting a recession globally from here is, we think, very unlikely, because if it were to be triggered, say, by a big slowdown in China, the trade flows are not sufficiently large to trigger a recession, we think, in, in places like the US or Europe. I mean, for example, the US exports to China are about roughly 1% of GDP. 
And although there's been a lot of focus on the manufacturing slowdown globally, manufacturing is roughly around 10% of GDP in the US and maybe 15% or so in Europe. It's not negligible, but it's not big enough. Yeah, these really are big to create... consumer markets. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That being said, and I think this is a bit of a risk, people may not be sufficiently focused on the corporate sector. And the corporate sector is very different from the economy itself. So, for example, you know, if we take the European markets, where you may have 15% exposure of manufacturing to GDP, overall, we estimate nearly 50% of revenues of companies in the quoted corporate sector are involved in manufacturing. So they're more exposed than the economy. We talked about China. Energy is also overweight. And energy in the is indices, overweight in the, in the indices, market yeah, yeah, relative yeah. to the economy. Right. So too is exposure to emerging markets. Again, for example, in Europe, around roughly 7% of revenues for the stock 600, the broad European index, is exposed to China directly and over 20% to emerging markets. That's much, much more than is the case for the broader economy. So higher so risk to possible. the markets at some level yes. than risks to the yes. economy. Yes, and I think that's the way I would answer that question, that the risks are probably greater in the corporate sector than they are broadly in the economy. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 9, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.